0: Scripture includes some remarkable leaders, amazing leaders. I can just say their name, and if you are aware of anything in the story of the Bible, you you probably are aware of some of the remarkable things that God did through these amazing leaders. These are uh, people like Joseph, Joshua, Deborah, Esther, David, Hezekiah, Peter, Paul, John, we could list many others that uh, go down as, as uh, amazing leaders who did, by God's grace, some really amazing things. And each one of them, there are lots of things to admire. There were strengths that they had, strengths of character, strengths of fortitude in times of trouble, times where they trusted in God, these sorts of things. We admire those strengths, and we, and we should. It is also very easy to so admire their strengths that we kind of gloss over their failures as well, their weaknesses, which are also on display. And by doing that, we kind of make them into caricatures of their real selves. Last week I told you a story about my eighth grade basketball. And if I might indulge one more basketball story here two weeks in a row, uh, this last week, one of my high school friends posted some videos of my senior year, our basketball team, our, our senior year, the in- entire games. And I haven't seen some of these videos since probably the day they were played. The game was played. And, and I got to tell you, I had great delight watching these old, not that old, uh, videos. Uh, and... A little bit about my senior year basketball team. So, we were really good. We were 26 and one. Uh, We, if I can say this, were largely considered the best team in the history of the school. Uh, And so, over time, we have, you know, enjoyed a sort of status. In fact, they had us, the school had our whole team back on the uh, 30th, did I say that? The 30th anniversary of our of my senior year to kind of honor our team at the school. So I say all of that to say that we were we were good. <laughs> at least in my memory, we were good. But this week I began watching videos from back in the day. And I was dismayed to watch these videos because you know what I found in actually watching the videos is that there was a lot of very poor defense that was played by my team. And a lot of unnecessary turnovers, mostly from my teammates. Uh, And I watched those videos and I kind of had this creeping feeling that maybe we weren't as good as I remember us being. In fact, the older I get, the better we used to be. Some of you can relate to that. We just weren't as good as I remember. And fran- frankly, this is always the case in a fallen world. Even the best things in this world are far from perfect. After the fall, nothing is perfect. Everything is somehow flawed in some way. And everyone is Blemished, and that includes even our greatest heroes, and certainly even our greatest heroes in the Bible. And today, as we continue our series in Moses, we really are going to get a glimpse into Moses the man. Not Moses the legend, but Moses the man. The same guy who stood up with courage to Pharaoh, and the same guy that, you know, lifted his arms and the Red Sea parted. This same guy who has so many amazing qualities about him that we rightly should admire, we are going to see here that Moses is a picture of every flawed human leader. And I want us by the end here to have some tips on how do we follow flawed leaders even as we worship our flawless Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because one of the keys to flourishing as a Christian is getting accustomed to following flawed human leadership. So, we are in Numbers chapter 20, and you may notice as I say 20, you're like, oh, we've only skipped ahead a few chapters. Yes, only a couple, but that is a skipping ahead of 38 years in the story, Last week we saw that Israel got up there to Kadesh Barnea and they sent spies into the land and the spies came back and two said we can take the land and ten said the the walls are big and the cities are big and the people are big, even the grapes are big. And the people heard that report and they rebelled against God's will and they refused to go into the promised land. And we saw last week that Israel failed to factor God into their future, as we often do as well. And when God is small, our fear is big. When our faith is small and our faith in God is small, our fears will rule us and overwhelm us. And what happened is that God judged their rebellion and, and he said, You want to die in the wilderness? I'm going to make that arrangement. You're going to wander in this wilderness, even though largely they probably stayed near Kadesh Barnea for those uh, decades, but you're going to be in this wilderness until everyone 20 years and older is dead. It's going to be your children who are going to grow up and are actually going to enter into the promised land, not you. And that was Numbers 14. Numbers 14. We get to Numbers 20, and we've gone ahead in time almost 40 years, and there's hardly any mention of anything for those 40 years. And I note that, in the words of this commentator, we can see that the author has passed over approximately 38 years spent in the desert, silent testimony that they were wasted, I wonder if maybe today you look back on your years of your life lived out of God's will and you think to yourself, if only I had done my life differently, those years would have been so different in my life. And indeed, that is the case. And surely Israel felt for all these years as they just sat there and had seven funerals an hour for 40 years, what a waste this is. We pick up the story now, Numbers 20, verse two, here's what God's word says. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished with our, when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought this assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. And here's the big one. There's no water to drink. Now you should be thinking to yourself, at least if you've been coming to Bethel Church for a couple months now, you should be thinking to yourself, this sounds so familiar. I swear I've heard this Somewhere before in the story, and indeed we have. Back in Exodus 15 and Exodus 16, Israel crosses the Red Sea. They have this great moment of victory. And right away, we find that these Israelites begin to whine and complain and grumble. And what were they complaining about? Uh, you know, no suntan lotion, no Wi Fi. No, they're complaining. We got nothing to drink. We got nothing to eat, and what we find now, 40 years later, is that those grumbling, complaining Israelites have raised a new generation of whiny, complaining Israelites. Apparently, the fruit did not fall far from the tree, and these grumbling adult children are carrying on the fine family tradition. Now, why are they thirsty? Okay, and I'm not asking medically why are they thirsty, but historically, why, why don't they have something to drink? And the answer is because of their own rebellious, stupid decisions. They are thirsty because they refuse to go into the land flowing with milk and honey. And I just imagine how hard this would have been for Moses for 38 years to have people coming up to him and saying, we want this, we want that. Why isn't this the way that I think that it should be? And every time, maybe he didn't say it, but in his mind he thought, it. well, if you would have gone into the promised land like we were supposed to, you wouldn't be experiencing these negative circumstances. They're all suffering a nomadic life because of their own sinful decisions. Now I note here something to admire in Moses. He does not seem to be as spiteful a leader as I would have been if I was in this role. He does not seem to bring this up. And you know, bearing under circumstances that are somebody else's fault for the sake of love or worship or whatever is a very admirable quality. I connected with a couple that I had known years in the past whose husband made terrible choices, and those choices led to a fairly long prison sentence for him and a whole bunch of embarrassment for the entire family for many, many years. And yet there was this wife with her husband. She deserves a marital medal of honor. She hung in there and continues to love him in spite of The utter embarrassment. How do you respond when other people's decisions negatively affect you? So we give Moses some kudos here. Okay, we're about to talk about his failures. We're getting to that. But this would not have been an easy 38 years to lead a bunch of whiny, complaining people who are in bad circumstances because of their own stupid decisions. All right, so verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock, note that, tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water, so shall so you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Now, again, this is sort of that deja vu thing happening. It's like, I've, I've seen this before. And indeed, we have. 40 years prior. We had a similar situation there in Exodus 17. The people grumble against Moses about being thirsty. God says, I want you to go over to the rock, I want you to strike the rock, and water's gonna come out, and that's how we're gonna meet the needs of the people. And that's exactly what Moses did, and a river of water came out of it. Here we are now, fast forward, 40 years later, and the people are yet again grumbling against Moses, worth, thirsty. God says, take your staff, get in front of everybody and go to this particular rock and I want you to tell the rock to yield its water. Did you catch the difference here? Forty years prior, he was to strike the rock and the water would come. Now God tells him to speak to the rock and the water will flow. Now let's be honest, this does not seem like a substantial difference, does it? I mean, aren't we sort of mired in unnecessary details here, exactly how the miracle happens, how the water actually comes out of the rock? I mean, whether you hit it, strike it, kick it. The point is water comes out of the rock. Unless you're God. And we come to find out that this makes a very big difference in the eyes of Almighty God. Here's what happens. Verse 9. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, this is Moses now, Hear now, you rebels. We're not off to a good start. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. Now this is, this is seemingly a great moment in the story. I mean, here we have miracle water coming out of a rock in the middle of the desert. And everyone's getting something to drink. The need is being met. I mean, this is a great moment. We're not going to ruin it with some details here, are we? I mean, praise God, water came from the rock. Well, here's God's assessment of this moment. Verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the Lord of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. What? Burning bush, 40 years on the backside of a desert, leading people out of Egypt crossing the Red Sea, manna on the ground, water from the rock, quail from the wind, 40 years of faithful leadership, and now I get one detail wrong, and you're telling me I can't go into the promised land. Well, that hardly seems fair. And from a certain sense, you could look at this and say, hey, the water did come. This was a miracle. So, I mean... This is a good thing, isn't it, God? And we learn in this that outward results are not always an indication of God's pleasure. Was this such a bad infraction? I mean, you could think of Moses sort of rationalizing this. I did what I did before. You said strike the rock before. I struck the rock before. Water came out. I sort of reverted to the old pattern of striking the rock for the water came out. Is this such a big deal? We would look at this and say, you know, aren't we all frustrated at times? I mean, don't we all kind of, you know, act out in some sort of way? I should have talked, but I kind of hit the rock, you know, sort of through the dish. It's no big deal. We all do it. I was just frustrated. Everybody gets frustrated. Forty years with these whiny Israelites, come on. And I'm sort of setting this up to show the difference between the way that human beings like us rationalize our sin and the way that God assesses, and what God expects. Because obviously, God views this as a great failure. Such a failure that he says to Moses and Aaron, you guys are not going into the promised land. Not after you did that. So what was the failure? And in this, I want us to realize that Moses' failure, and I have three Three aspects of failure here are the same patterns that you and I often follow in our sort of fractured incomplete obedience which is the first thing that we see here is that Moses failure was first of all it was an incomplete obedience okay there were things he got right there were things that he did that he should have done he did at gather Israel together he did take the staff as God told him to do he wanted to satisfy their thirst, he was a caring leader, wanted to meet the needs of the people. These are all good things, we admire these things. In fact, if you stop there, you could say, he got seven or eight out of 10 right. And here in Northwest Indiana, you graduate if you get seven or eight out of 10 right. And for many of us, that, that's a good thing, okay? That's a good thing. Some of you seniors now, don't blow it at the end. Finish strong. Graduation's around the corner. But in God's school, that won't do, especially when it robs God of his glory. Moses didn't obey all the way. He obeyed most of the way. This is like Saul, if you know the story of Saul where God tell him, told him to go and to wipe out the Amalekites. And so Saul went and he wiped out the Amalekites, at least almost all of the Amalekites. He, he did not kill King Agog, and he saw the flocks of, you know, animals and such, and he said, well, that would be a waste for us to destroy all of these sheep and goats and all the rest. Why don't we just add them to our flocks? It'll be fine. And if you know the story, Samuel came and said, to obey is better than to sacrifice. Here Moses did most of it right, but not all of it Right? And we've come to find out that in the eyes of God, incomplete obedience is actually disobedience. Incomplete obedience is disobedience. And how easy it is for us to sort of rationalize our own disobedience, at least it was partial obedience. I did most of what God expects from us, and that must be good enough. I've done more than most people I know. God must grade on a curve. But God judged Moses' incomplete obedience, and he called it disobedience. That was his first failure. Here's his second. Let's talk about anger. Okay, anger. Anger and self-righteousness. Listen again to the words of Moses here. He says, hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring we bring water for you out of this rock. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. Now what is wrong in this? Okay, we started off, as I said, badly. You rebels! That'd be like me getting up and saying, you know, every Sunday, you sinners! Now is that true? That was an incomplete obedience right there, I must say. An incomplete response, okay? You're sinners, and so am I. You're rebels too often, and so am I. This is the self-righteousness of Moses, which is leading to his, his anger, okay? He is very focused on their problems, on their failures, on their rebellions. Who is he? Sort of blind to in this, his own sin. In fact, note this: Moses is sinning as he points out their sinning. He himself is violating God's will. Did Jesus say something about this? Yes, there was this story he told in the Sermon on the Mount. There, you know, there's some people that you know they 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 have this uh, log of you know, sin in their own life, but they walk around the congregation pointing out the little specks that they see in other people. Oh, that speck, I'm going to focus on that speck. That speck is terrible. You've got to change that. All the while, there's this log, you know, they're wiping out half the commons with the log in their own eye. It's a certain sense of hyperbole there to make the point that it is so easy for us to obsess about other people's failures while being blind to our own failures often in the same categories. Moses is outraged at their sin. What was their sin? They failed to trust God for water. Why did Moses strike the rock? He failed to trust God for water. He thought, I've gotta hit this rock because I can't just speak to this rock like God told me. Do you see the hypocrisy? In fact, I wonder if you've noticed, and this is an observation learned over time, i got lots more learning on this, but the things that most often bother us that we see in other people, often, not always, but often, are things that we internally struggle with and are blind to. And that's why it bothers us so much. In fact, Test this sometime. Pick somebody in your mind who really bothers you, really annoys you, has negative destructive habits or whatever it might be, sinful things. Pick somebody like that. In an honest moment, ask the question, why does this bother me so much about this person? They're so selfish. They're so prideful. They're so this or that. And what I'm encouraging you to realize is that your annoyance in them is a kind of mirror often for similar things hidden that you're blind to in your own heart. And this is Moses right now, okay? Moses, he is, he is angry, okay? He is angry. Let's talk about Moses' anger. Swindoll points out that this is such a long pattern in Moses' life. Uh, I would speculate that when his mom put him in the, in the basket in the reeds, he was mad about it, okay? He started off mad, he ends mad. Uh, you know, we have the example of the Egyptian, that he, he sees the Egyptian and, and he looks both ways and he kills the Egyptian. Uh, we have a kind of violent response to life's circumstances. He gets upset, he gets mad. He throws down the tablets of the law when he comes down from Mount Sinai, throws them down in frustration and anger He was often very mad at God and mad at Israel. And here we have him striking the rock in anger. Moses was a humble man. Moses was an amazing leader, but he had a lifelong flaw, and that is that he was a hothead. He was a hothead. And that self-righteous anger at other people cost him the promised land. And I just ask the question here today, do you have some sort of besetting sin in your life? A long-term area of weakness that when life's hard or when you're under pressure, that that just comes bubbling out. Be very careful with those sorts of things because they can, like Moses, in the time of adversity and trouble, rise up and bite you. And this was Moses, blind to his own sin, consumed with the sin of the Israelites. So that's the second thing, second failure that we see here, the sin of anger and self-righteousness. But if there is a core issue that Moses, uh, that, that, that upset God and that cost him the promised land, it is this, that Moses was a glory thief. Moses robbed God of glory Do his name. Listen again to God's explanation. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land. You failed to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people. He robbed God of glory. Now you say, well, how did, how did, how did Moses rob God of of glory well we see it in what he says and we see it in what he does he says must we Aaron and I me and uh, me amigo must we be the ones are you putting us in a place where we got to do this for you really you rebels who's doing this miracle Moses and Aaron are doing this miracle we are the provider for you Israel must we do it they were taking credit for something that God was going to do. And we see even in him striking the rock, here we have a kind of like dramatic, rawr, rawr, rebels. revels. Where's the attention of his leadership? It's on him. And even the dramatic fashion in which he chose to do the miracle. This is about me. I'm the great Moses. I bring water from a rock. And in this, you have to remember, what is God's grand purpose in bringing Israel out of Egypt and bringing them to the promised land and fulfilling the promise to all the patriarchs? His grand purpose is that his name would be glorified amongst the nations. And by the way, in this, God has not changed. God's great purpose in everything is the glory due his name for the praise of his glory. We are here today for the praise of his glory, okay? Not our glory, not my glory, not your glory. We exist as the people of God for the glory of God. God has not changed in this respect. And here Moses attempts to steal that glory by doing it his way and taking credit for it. Now what should Moses have done? He should have done what John the Baptist did. And if you wanna know, here's a picture of godly spiritual leadership. It's not Moses at the rock here. It is John the Baptist who said, he must increase, I must decrease. You looking for a mission in your life? something to put on the wall and to say this is my grand purpose every day when I wake up and go out the door. He must increase. I must decrease. This is how we live for the glory of God. This is how we live God-centeredly. And we see the failure in Moses. He failed to give glory to God. He stole it, and God judged him for it. So those three reasons are why Moses was not allowed to go into the Promised Land. There's a lot of lessons to learn from that, but the one that I want to focus on is one that I think is critical for every single Christian to flourish in their Christian life, especially in the community of faith in a local church where the church is called to be led by human beings. Flawed human beings. And what we see with Moses is he wasn't a failed leader, certainly not, but he was a flawed leader. And the best thing we can hope for in this life before Jesus comes is to be led by leaders who are not failures, but they certainly will always be flawed. Flawed. So how do we do this? Okay, my, my point, how to follow flawed leaders while worshiping a flawless Savior. I have some Guidelines here I'd like to share with you. Number one, don't put human leaders too high. Don't put them too high. Pastors, elders, teachers, deacons, even maybe national Christian leaders or authors, people that we sort of go, oh, they're so amazing. We admire them so much. We easily put people like that on this kind of pedestal. Where they're like, they're up there, and then everybody else is down here. And oftentimes, this is because there is some extraordinary gift or strength that they have. Maybe they have a large following. The temptation quietly in our hearts is to look to the human teacher, pastor, leader, author as a sort of replacement messiah, a kind of replacement savior. My hope is in this human being, actually, This is known as celebrity culture in the church and it has plagued the church from the beginning. If I had time, I would go to 1 Corinthians 1, but just to summarize, Paul writes to the Corinthians and the Corinthians got so much wrong on so many levels, but they certainly got this wrong. In the church at Corinth, there was a faction over here saying, we're of Apollos. There's a group over here saying, we follow Peter. There's another group over on the other side going, we're followers of Paul. And Paul writes this letter to them and he goes, did Paul die for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And he writes to this sort of uh, tribal following of human leader tendency that the human heart always has. It is certainly true today. In fact, I think in many ways the celebrity culture desire is greater now with media and everything than it's ever been. But his point is that when you venerate a human leader, you are putting him or her way higher than they deserve. You're putting them in a place, a sacred place, that only Christ should have in our hearts, where we look to him for our hope and our salvation. And that danger, friends, is revealed when that venerated leader has a misstep or maybe has a sin that becomes evident. And all of a sudden, people are shocked and people are devastated and, Why? Because the feet of clay of this venerated leader is now on display for everyone to see. And what you need to know is that every single human being, when seen up close, has plenty of flaws to remind you that he is no Jesus or she is no Jesus. Every single one of them. To quote uh, the great theologian Jim Carrey, Behind every successful man is a woman rolling her eyes. <laughs> How true that is. And I think with this, by the way, side note, do you know one of the hardest roles in our entire congregation? Are those women married to leaders in our church? And I'll say specifically to be a pastor's wife or an elder's wife. And I just want to say, would you please have great sympathy for these dear women who week after week listen to their husband teach and counsel and proclaim the way that it's supposed to be in society and in in the home and in marriage and the church, and these wives see the flaws up close. It doesn't mean their husbands are failures, it just means it's hard to be married to Moses. Amen. Okay. Now, what I'm talking about here, I'm going to burst some bubbles right now. What I'm talking about here is true locally. We're like within our church. Okay? It is also true nationally. There are many nationally famous pastors, teachers, authors, radio people, etc., that we listen to, read their books, admire them from afar, and Maybe in our minds, we sort of imagine them to be almost like, you know, uh, sort of demi-messiahs of some kind, and yet we've never met them. We don't know them at all, but we revere them as the embodiment of Christian virtue. And what I want to say to you is that in my role here at Bethel Church, I have some opportunities to get behind the veil behind the, uh, the curtain, in national evangelical sort of circles. And I want to encourage you that there is much there to admire. Amen. But there is a lot that you would be very surprised by. There's a, uh, a friend that I have who... Um, <laughs> I was talking to him one time. We were sitting at a baseball game just talking about uh, sort of the world and, and various things. And this is a guy that, like, in his role, he is constantly with the famous pastors and, and people that, that uh, in evangelicalism, everybody would, would know. And what he said to me, I, I, it stands out to me because he said, you know, people think that because they're an amazing preacher that they're amazing at everything else as well. And he says I'm working with these guys every day and he says they're amazing preachers they stink at everything else. <laughs> I don't think he meant that morally but you know we sort of imagine because all we get is them in their singular gift that is their unique gift and we sort of imagine that you know living with them hanging out with them doing church with them would just be this also near perfect experience and I'm here to tell you, it is not that. Uh, And that includes the pastor preaching this message, by the way. I'm glad nobody amen that, but you could. (laughs) So here's my encouragement, is let's make sure the only celebrity in our church is Jesus, okay? Can we amen that? He's the only one who deserves to be a celebrity, He is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. All right. So don't put them too high. Big mistake. Lots of pain comes from that. Number two, don't put them too low. Don't put them too low. Listen to what Hebrews says, Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We put spiritual leaders too low when we refuse to follow their leadership. We put spiritual leaders too low when the way that we follow their leadership causes them to be discouraged. And the point that the writer of Hebrews makes here is that if you have discouraged pastors and leaders leading your congregation, this actually is detrimental to you. It's best for the sheep when the shepherds are happy. And it's best for the shepherds when the sheep are happy. Okay? And this is what healthy looks like in a local congregation. Don't put your leaders too low. We put our leaders too low when the church reminds us of the grumbling, whiny, and complaining Israelites at Kadesh Barnea. And I will tell you, I've been in ministry for 30 years. I've been here for a long time. I have dealt with some people who very closely resemble the Israelites at Kadesh Barnea, and their donkeys, I might add, okay? (laughs) There are some people who are unleadable, unteachable, unbendable, unbearable. Now thankfully, they all left 20 years ago. <laughs> and we don't have a single one of said donkeys in the church right now. Not one of them. Did I hear a "Eon?on) you'll probably come talk to me after the service. <laughs> but when people disparage and discourage their spiritual leaders, Hebrews 13 is saying here that they're doing their own soul damage. And none of us want to do damage to our own soul. We need we want to refresh our souls. And one way that our souls are refreshed is when our leaders are refreshed. And the culture of the congregation is one of joy and happiness. And this means that we are functioning as God designed us uh, to function. So, if you're hearing me, don't put the leaders too high, but also don't put them too low. Third tip, when your leader fails or your leaders fail, ask yourself, is this a disqualification or sanctification? If I had more time, I would turn to Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 5, these are where uh, the New Testament gives the qualifications for being a leader in the church, and the summary statement on these is that leaders are to be above reproach, okay? Above reproach. Not above sin, not above mistake, not above weakness, not above blunders, but rather the general character of their life reinforces rather than detracts from the ministry of the word and the ministry of the gospel. There are some sins that disqualify. And if you've been in church, churches for very long, you know the sting that happens when a leader is disqualified. But most of the failures that you're gonna observe in your leaders are not disqualifications, they are issues of sanctification. In other words, your leaders are works in progress much like you are works in progress. None of us have arrived. I read this uh, advice recently, this is marriage advice, okay, so now some of you are super interested. Here's some marriage advice, but it applies to the point that I'm making here The authors write, when thinking through whether something needs forgiveness or grace, ask yourself two questions. Does this hurt me or just irritate me? Number two, does this need to be corrected or simply accepted as part of being married to an imperfect person? The room got quiet. But isn't that one of the keys in marriage? And it certainly is a key in a local congregation. Because, you know, we have people that visit our church and initially they're like, this is heaven on earth. And in my heart, I'm like, I'm so glad you feel that way and I hope you do five years from now. Even in my heart, I know they're not going to think that five years from now and maybe not five weeks from now. Because the closer you get and you realize, man, there's a whole bunch of sinners here in this church. Pastor called them donkeys. (laughs) I'm going to see imperfection and failure all over this place. And indeed, you will. But that doesn't mean failure. It means we're flawed. Moses' leadership was not failure, but he was very much a flawed man and leader. And this is why what's needed in a local congregation is huge portions of grace and forbearance as we kind of wait for sanctification to take place in all of our lives and for us to become the people that God would want us to be. Third, or fourth, I'm off of my numbering. When your leaders fail, and they will, it is a learning opportunity. This is a proactive thing. This is what we're doing with Moses. Here we are, we're looking at Moses' failure and going, how did he fail, why did he fail, why did God do what, say what he did? And we want to derive everything we can out of Moses' failure so that in our life, we might be successful. And in our spiritual lives, we can be successful. This is a wonderful habit to look at leaders and to learn from their failures. I was recently on a Zoom call with a guy that has been in ministry a long time, one of these sort of nationally known guys, and he was kind of lecturing us, and we were very much listening and learning And he said, I keep a file. And he said, over the years, and he's been in ministry forever, he says, over the years, every time I have somebody that I know, a friend of mine, that has a moral failure and disqualifies themselves in ministry, I put their name and I put it in a file. He said, I presently have 200 names in the file. And he says, periodically, I open the file and I go through every name, and I remember my friendship with that guy, and I remember what he was like before the failure, and he says, I say to myself, Rick, this is you if you blow it. He learns from others' failures, and this is a very good practice, okay? Not too high, not too low, lots of grace, lots of learning, and finally, I note that Jesus never has and never will fail. So Here we have another example, okay, of the point that I've been making throughout the entire series. I mean, Moses, you can get enamored with Moses. I mean, this guy is truly one of the most amazing people who has ever lived. You go to the Library of Congress, there's a statue of Moses right there in Washington, D.C., of all things. Many other places all over the world, Moses is revered as one of the greatest men who have ever lived. You could get enamored with this all-time great leader, but we see today that as great as Moses was, he wasn't that great. Far from perfect, Moses failed. And what I'm saying, this is yet another opportunity in the story of Moses to say, yeah, I like Moses, but I love Jesus. The things that I see in Moses are perfected and completed in Jesus Christ. Jesus never failed. He faced a temptation far greater than Moses there in that wilderness for 40 days. He didn't fail Jesus was tempted in every way, like us. He never failed. Jesus could have run out of Gethsemane like all the other disciples. He didn't run. He could have called ten legions of angels at any point up to his death and been immediately saved. He didn't. His obedience was complete. It was perfect, right to death on the cross. And in this... He is our flawless leader and savior. So, what I'm saying, church, is like Moses, learn from Moses, but save your highest worship for Jesus, the perfect leader and lover of our souls. Amen? Amen.